Okay, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we praise Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Paul, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we're going to continue with our little look at St. Paul today. And for those of you who, uh, you know, if anybody's coming for the first time, you can catch up on old ones, because I'm putting them all on my, on my website. They're always being recorded and they're all being posted. So if you're ever curious, you know, or, or something like that, or if, if you want in any way to reference anything I said, uh, taking notes and you forgot something, fatherhudgens.com, spell out the word father, okay? And it's all there, and I'll put these up um, for you to take a look at. Okay, so we've had our introduction, okay? And last week, uh, we talked about the letters to the Thessalonians, and uh, if you thought that the letters to the Thessalonians were confusing, if you thought that they were, were difficult, all I can tell you is Thessalonians is simple compared to Corinthians. Okay? This is one of Paul's most important letters. And let's, let's just review for a moment why Paul is difficult. Something I said my first week, but let's just review it. Two reasons why Paul is difficult. Number one, the format of a letter. Okay, the Gospels are easy. He's telling stories. Everybody can follow a story. Letters, we're reading somebody else's mail. Okay? And we don't know why it was written. We're only hearing one half of the conversation. Second reason, and this is probably the, 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 bigger than anything else, the second reason why Paul is difficult is because Paul is teaching theology. Now what I'm going to do with all these letters, we're going to go over our main theme Okay, because I do, I am certain that every letter has an overarching theme that really does tie the whole thing together. An essential reason why the letter was written. Okay, and our letter to the Corinthians is about love. Right? Our letter to the Corinthians is about agape. It's about Christian behavior. Um, but all throughout Paul... If you want to have a really good understanding of Paul, keep this in mind. All throughout Paul, he goes off on little digressions. And he makes theological statements which can be taken all by themselves. All right? So if you can have an understanding of what Paul's writing about and why he's saying what he's saying, you can take those little theological digressions, you can put them into context, and think you can have a much deeper understanding of what's going on. Okay? So let's take a look at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians here. All right? Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, a really brief overview of this is, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is the story of a bishop with a crisis on his hands. Okay, the bishop is Paul, the crisis is in Corinth, alright? Um, and there's lots of things going on in Corinth, and they're all going on at once. This is one of the reasons why, why Corinthians is difficult. There's lots of problems going on, he's addressing all of them at once in this letter, okay? And so when you read Corinthians, when you hear Corinthians read at Mass, you'll hear all these different subjects. Just remember, he's taking on all these different subjects uh, 
at once. Okay? Um, and another reason, actually, if you want to keep this in mind, why not only Corinthians is difficult, but why Paul is difficult, is because when Paul sat down to write Corinthians, or Thessalonians for that matter, or Romans for that matter, or whatever it might be, Paul didn't write this letter the same way you would pen a letter to a friend. Okay? Paul had a secretary. Paul was giving dictation. And what we get is Paul with like this stream of consciousness, and sometimes he gets little half sentences and half fragments, and sometimes the secretary doesn't entirely get it down. And you might, want, you might wonder, how do we know how Paul had a secretary? How do we know Paul didn't write these things? Because in one letter, okay, the letter to the Romans specifically, the secretary slipped in a little message of his own. Right? He goes, I, Tertius, send my greetings too. Okay? Tertius wanted to say hello. So he, he tacked that in. Paul probably didn't know. And then in one letter, uh, Paul actually says, I'm writing this one myself, unlike all the others. That was his letter to Philemon. See, I even have my great big looping O's, he wrote. Um, so Paul's got a secretary. And, and, and if you keep that in mind, some of the little fragments of the way Paul writes, they begin to make sense. He's dictating. Okay? Now... Let's take a, look, take a look at the background of Corinthians, and then let's take a look at the subjects that Corinthians goes over. Okay? First thing we've got to understand, to understand the letter to the Corinthians, is we've got to understand this place, Corinth. Okay? Let's take a look at the city of Corinth. Corinth is one of the most important commercial centers in all the Roman Empire, and if you take a look at its location, you can understand immediately why. Okay, um, He's situated between the Aegean Sea, and if my map continued a little bit further, it would continue out to the Adriatic Sea on a direct line from Ephesus to Rome. All right? So if you're traveling between Ephesus and Rome, uh, it makes a tremendous amount of sense to pass through this way. Um, when you're traveling in the ancient world, you can travel by foot or by horse, or you can travel by sea. Okay, now, travel by sea is far more popular. First of all, it's faster. Okay. Second of all, it's safer. It's a lot safer. So if you're traveling by foot, there are brigands and bandits and bad people hiding out, waiting to attack people, travelers who are going along the way. If you're traveling by sea... You can see a pirate ship coming from a long way off. And not only that, but the Roman Empire had a tremendous anti-piracy program on the high seas. And as far as major trade routes were concerned, piracy in the ancient Mediterranean Sea was virtually eliminated. Okay? So St. Paul, he's writing in this major center of Corinth because if you want to travel Rome, well, everybody would, you got two choices. Okay? You got two choices when you're going to sail all the way around the peninsula, which is called the Peloponnesus. Okay, two, this is 202 miles, and it adds two days. Or, you can get off the boat here, you can roll it across wooden rollers, this is four miles, pick up here in this bay and continue straight on. Save yourself two days. So everybody wanted to cut across what they call the Isthmus of Corinth, and if you ever go there today, you'll see it's an enormous canal now. They can, the ships can sail straight the ships can sail, can, can sail uh, straight on through. Okay? Um, so here's the importance of Corinth. Now, 
Everybody know the reputation that port towns have, right? Everybody know the reputation, with all deference to those who have served illustriously in the United States Navy, that sailors have, okay? Okay. Well, if that's the case for a port town, what would you say about a town of two ports? Okay, Corinth had a reputation in the ancient world for being a real center of immorality like none other in the ancient world. Corinth was uh, Las Vegas, Key West, Bourbon Street, um, all rolled into one. And the fact that we know this is actually reflected in the ancient Greek language. They had words for immorality that directly referenced Corinth. For example, if you were going out on the town, you might say you were going out to Corinthiasisthai. It's a Greek verb. I'm going to go Corinthian tonight. Which means you're going to party down. Okay? On the town. And if you knew an, a fine young lady and you wanted to give her the ultimate insult, you'd call her a Core Corinthiae. You'd call her a Corinthian girl. And she'd walk home in tears upon being called she was a Corinthian girl because the Corinthians, they had a temple in Corinth to Aphrodite, goddess of love, right? You can still see it today if you go there. It's this great big hill outside of town. It's called the Arco Corinth. And they've got these pillars left over in the temple. And they go up to the temple of Aphrodite where they were serviced by a thousand priestesses. And it had nothing to do with praying to God. Okay? Right? They were a thousand prostitutes servicing the temple of Aphrodite. And that's what they do as they were going through. Not only that, but in 1834... Corinth, and they did all this archaeological excavation as a consequence of this earthquake, and they discovered in one city block 33 bars. Okay, now that's hard to do. Okay, but in Corinth, this was a place unlike any other in the ancient world. So keep that in mind now, all right, when you, when you hear this letter to the Corinthians, because it, it kind of does explain some of the things that Paul was talking about, including his approach to his letter to the Corinthians. Um, and that's, I think we should, we should just have a little bit of approach now to, to, to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Okay, Paul lived a year and a half in Corinth. Okay, and here's how he got there. If you look through your, uh, your little book, you'll see uh, a map of Paul's second missionary journey. All right? And this is about 51 AD. And Paul had gone to Derby and Lystra and Iconium. He'd gone to Troas. He'd gone to Philippi. And he'd gone to Thessalonica. He'd gone to Berea. Remember, he was fleeing all these persecutions, and they persecuted him, and he had to, he ran him out of town? All right. Paul got ran out of town in Berea, and Paul goes down to Corinth. Now, remember what I I'm sorry. Paul goes down to Athens. Now, remember what I said about Paul wanting to establish himself in important places? Right? Paul wanted to establish himself in important places because from those important places he could go and, and have a tremendous influence. Well, hey, what's the most important place in the entire Hellenistic world? Athens. So Paul sets his, sets his sights on Athens. Paul goes down to Athens and he's got a chip on his shoulder because he's going to convert the Athenians. And you know what happened when Paul went down to Athens? Okay. Who's ever heard of his speech at the Areopagus? Raise your hand if you've heard of the speech at the... Okay. Raise your hand if you've heard of an Areopagus. Okay, so I'll tell you. Um, 
in Athens, there's a center of town. It's called, uh, it's called the Areopagus. Okay? Um, and uh, in this center of town, they have all these different temples to all these different gods. They got, you go up to the Acropolis, you see the tiny little temple... Uh, the, the Acropolis um, uh, was the Parthenon, uh, the, the tiny little temple to Athena Nike, and you got a, a, a temple to, to Hermes, and you got a temple uh, to Zeus, and all these temples all there, and that was where they gathered. And when you think of Athens, ancient Athens, what do you think of? What do you think of? Ancient Athens, what do you think of? Wisdom, right? Socrates, Aristotle, wisdom. Well, Paul did too. Okay, so Paul goes to the center of town. He gets into Athens, he goes to the, the center of town, and he makes this speech. And you know, here's Paul, you can imagine he thinks that he's going to win over the Athenians with his reason. Okay? Paul says, standing up in the middle of the area, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious, looking around seeing all these temples. right? But I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I now proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't lie in shrines made by man. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't have need of anything, since he himself gives all life and breath. And he made from one nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their habitation. They should seek God, hope, in which they might feel after, feel after him and find him. He's not far from us. In him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, a representation of the art and the imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. So when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, and others said, we'll have to hear you about this on another time. And Paul went out from among them. And some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and some others with him. If you look at the cover of your Paul book, this is Raphael painting of Paul preaching at the Areopagus. Okay, now you're looking around and everybody's laughing, scorning. A couple people are listening. Most people are thinking that he's think, thinking that he's ridiculous. So Paul tries to take this temple to an unknown God and say, hey, I'm going to tell you about the unknown God. Can I give you a little bit of background about the temple of the unknown God? It's kind of interesting. Okay, 300 years before this, 300 years B.C., there's a plague in Athens. Okay, and all these people are dying. And when they wanted to stop the people who were dying, they offered up sacrifices to the gods. And they took a lamb, and they offered it to Athena Nike. And they took a little lamb, and they offered it to Zeus. And they took a little lamb, and they offered it to Hermes, and it didn't stop the plague. It didn't stop the plague. So a poet comes up from Crete, one of their poets, and he says, I've got an idea. How about we take a bunch of lambs and we let them run loose? Okay? Wherever they lay down, we'll offer them up to that god. Okay? And this is what they did. And some of them laid down in front of the temple of Athena Nike. And some of them laid down in front of the temple of, uh, of Zeus. And some of them laid down in front of the temple of Hermes. And some of them walked out of town. And some of them walked down the hill. And some of them walked down and, and laid down beside a rock or beside a tree. And they offered them up to wherever they laid down. And they put up an inscription 
to the unknown God, as if you know the, the, the lamb had chosen the place where they would lay down, and it worked. Okay, and it worked. The, the, the plague ended, and so all throughout ancient Athens, they have temples to the unknown gods. Well, this is Paul's effort uh, to try to, to, to break through to uh, to break through to the ancient Athenians, um, but as you know, he. he he landed flat on his face. Okay? His, his effort to try to reason with them, uh, it, it didn't bear any good fruit at all. And Paul gets run out of town. And where does Paul go? Like he always does. He goes to Corinth. And it says he goes there with much fear and trembling. And it's got to be for two reasons. Reason number one, his big plan just failed. He really had his whole set on Athens. There's no letter of St. Paul to the Athenians. And this is why. Okay, so he goes to the next town center of all the immorality and corruption and that's where he makes his big splash. And I'm almost tempted to go off on a tangent just on that and say, just when you think all things in life have fallen apart, watch out, God's got a, still got a plan up his sleeve and it's very often the last thing you'd expect. Okay, So Paul's big plan is a, is a flop. He goes to Corinth, the last place he expects to be a success. And the very first thing Paul does when he goes to Corinth goes to the synagogue. That's what Paul always did. He'd go into the synagogue and he preached Jesus Christ in the synagogue. And you remember up in, uh, up in Thessalonica, Paul had a lot of success teaching in the synagogue? He didn't have quite as much success down in Corinth. Okay? Paul, uh, he goes and he lives with a married couple. Their names are Aquila and Priscilla. All right? And he starts speaking, to the, starts speaking to the Gentiles. Now Paul starts getting in trouble with the Jews. They start saying the same things about Paul. They said, in Thessalonica, they started to say, this man opposes our traditions. And they tried to bring Paul to court, to the Roman procurator, whose name was Gallio, which, by the way, allows us to date this letter. Okay? Gallio refuses to hear the case. This is an internal case. This is a Jewish case. It has nothing to do with the Roman Empire. Paul doesn't hear the case. But what Paul's afraid of now is more persecution. Remember what happened in Philippi? And he preaches and, 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 and Raises a ruckus, and, and the people left behind are the ones paying the price for it. Because now there's persecution against Christians. So Paul goes to Thessalonica. And he again raises a ruckus, and Paul gets run out of town, but the people who left behind, they're now paying the price for it. There's a persecution against Christians. Paul didn't want that to happen again. Paul didn't want that to happen again. So what Paul does, he just leaves town. And this is the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul goes back to Jerusalem. Right? He figures, look, I'm not going to start another persecution against these poor people. So that's the end of, that's the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, now, four or five years goes by. Paul gets, becomes, becomes world famous. Word, word is spread about this magnificent speaker, Paul. Word starts to spread about Paul. And down here in Alexandria, in Egypt, there's a man named Apollos. And you might, you'll run across his name when you hear the scriptures read. It's a man named Apollos. He wants to meet Paul. Apollos goes up to Corinth to see Paul, but it's too late. Paul's already gone. Okay? But what happens is Apollos ends up learning his faith from the people in Corinth, and he gets baptized by Aquila and Priscilla, who used to be Paul's hosts, and he starts preaching where, 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 where Paul leaves off. Okay? Now, as I said, four or five years goes by, Paul has another missionary journey. Okay. You guys with me so far? He has another missionary journey, and he's wandering around. This time he ends up right here in Ephesus. In Ephesus. 
And you can see now, turn on the, the GNC, lots of commerce going back and forth between Ephesus and Corinth. And Athens, Paul lives three years in Ephesus. Okay? Uh, and, I'm, and I'm tempted to go off on tangents of some other things that, that, that happened in Ephesus, but I'm, but I'm not going to. Paul lives three years here in Ephesus, and word gets out that Paul's over in Ephesus. Okay? And so in the meantime, those four or five years that have gone by, there have been some problems in Corinth. And so what they do is they, they, they send over Timothy over to Ephesus, and they say, can you please help us, Paul? Okay, can you please help us? There's been some problems since you left. Four main problems. Divisions and factions in the church. Okay. Incest. Lawsuits before pagan courts. And as you might imagine, from a place like Corinth, lots of unchastity. Okay? Big problems. Paul, help us. These are our problems. Oh, by the way, we have four big questions for you. Marriage and virginity. Idolatry. Problems at Mass, and we'll get to it just a moment. And this whole business of resurrection from the dead. Paul, please, can you answer our questions? And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Right? Right? Wrong. It's Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Oh, we call it 1 Corinthians, make no doubt. But if you read 1 Corinthians you'll discover that Paul references another letter that he's already written. Well, where is it? Where is it? Do we have it? Has it been lost? Nobody knows. However, we might actually still have it. We might actually still have it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that next week. (laughs) That'll bring you back, okay? Because, interestingly enough, 2 Corinthians, which we're going over next week, 2 Corinthians is actually 4th Corinthians. Because in his second letter to the Corinthians, he references another letter, which we don't have. Maybe. Okay? And so what we've got here is, we call it 1st Corinthians. In historical fact, it's the second letter he ever wrote to the Corinthians. 2nd Corinthians, in historical fact, is the fourth letter he ever wrote to the Corinthians. And as far as the real first and the real third letter to the Corinthians, we'll talk about that next week. I think you'll find it interesting. Okay? We might still have these. Um, but we can say this now... Um, as we start to go into the nature of Paul's letters to the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, that this is about Christian behavior, because that was really his, that was really his problem. So let, let's go over a few of these uh, a few of these issues. Okay. So now, when you hear Paul's first letter to the Corinthians mentioned, the better you remember this: four big problems, four big questions. The better you're going to be able to understand the context in which Paul was writing, because that's what it's all about. All right. Four big problems. Four big questions, and they still speak to us today. So let's talk for a moment about factions, okay? And I'm reading from uh, First Letter of the Corinthians, chapter one, verses ten to sixteen. Okay, and Paul writes, "I appeal to you, brethren, by the, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment." For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you say that you were baptized in my name. 
I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I don't remember anyone else who I baptized. You can see how it's being dictated. Would anybody write that? No. Okay? Okay. So he's... For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, so what's the problem here? Remember what I was telling you about Apollos coming across? Okay, you can see now that these ancient Greeks, they're treating Paul the way they treated their ancient philosophers. I belong to Plato, and I belong to Aristotle, and I belong to Socrates. See, they think it's an earthly wisdom. And they're getting divided along the level of the messengers. So some people say, no, I'm a follower of Paul. Somebody else says, I'm a follower of... By the way, Paul's followers were probably lower-class Gentiles. Okay? Probably. Probably. Why do we say lower-class Gentiles? Well, how much success did he have with the Jews in Corinth? A lot or a little? Not so much. So we went to preach to the Gentiles. But then when he preaches to the Gentiles, you know what he says about them? It's a very revealing line. Not many of you are wise by worldly standards. In other words, you're not exactly honor students, you people. Okay? And so it was probably, you know, your lower class Gentiles. And then there was Apollos. He probably got the more educated ones because he had a reputation for being very eloquent. And then there's Cephas. Anybody who Cephas is? Who's Cephas? Who's heard of Cephas? Cephas is the Hebrew name for Peter. Those were Jews. Okay? And then there's this, I belong to Christ. Now, here's an interesting little thing. Um, This is just kind of interesting for you people who like ancient tidbits. But when you wrote in ancient Greek, there wasn't punctuation. There weren't capitals and small letters. And there wasn't even spacing between the words. It was one great, big, long stream of letters. If you look at these ancient Greek texts, one great, no spacing, no punctuation. And so what it might have actually been saying here, maybe, was Paul was saying, some people say, I belong to Apollo. Some people say, I belong to Cephas. I belong to Christ. Paul might have been saying, I belong to Christ. Or it might have been another faction. We're really not sure. Okay? Um, but, uh, but what Paul's trying to say here is, um, you, you, you guys, you're... Uh, you're, you're, you're being divided among yourselves. And isn't it interesting? You know, it's like where two or more are gathered in his name, there's usually a fight. <laughs> okay? And even back then, there were, there, were great, uh, there were great divisions. Okay, but here's the reason why they were divided. Okay, the reason why they were divided. I'm reading now from 18 to 25, chapter 1. Okay, the reason why they were divided was because they misunderstood the message. And this gets to the heart of the message of 1 Corinthians. The message of 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever all thwart. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater in this age? Has God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, a folly to the Gentiles. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks alike, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Okay, why were they divided? They were missing the main message. They were treating Paul like a, like a secular philosopher. And Paul's preaching something that's ultimately completely otherworldly. Okay? He's preaching agape. 
He's preaching sacrificial love. He's preaching the cross. Now here's something interesting. You've heard it said, uh, a stumbling block to the Jews and an absurdity to the Gentiles. You guys heard that before? Pretty commonly well-known phrase. Here's why it was a stumbling block to the Jews. The reason why it was a stumbling block to the Jews was when Christianity began to really catch on okay, and, and, and grab a following, preaching at the time focused on one passage from the, from the book of Deuteronomy. It's chapter 20, verse 23. And it says that he who hangs from the wood is accursed. He who hangs from the wood is accursed. So they were saying the crucifixion was proof that he's not the Messiah. Okay? That's what they were preaching. And that's why it was a scandal of the Jews. Now, an absurdity to the Greeks. Why was it an absurdity to the Greeks? Okay. The reason why it was an absurdity to the Greeks is because they had an understanding of, of God, even a monotheism, by pure reason. Right? But it was a limited understanding. You guys ever heard of uh, the teaching from the First Vatican Council? The First Vatican Council that says... You can know God with certainty by the light of human reason alone. You ever heard of that before? Doesn't mean you're not going to have errors, okay? Doesn't mean you're going to understand the Trinity. Doesn't mean you're going to understand love your neighbor. Doesn't mean, but you can know that there's a God. And and this is how we end up with such great wisdom from people like Socrates and Aristotle, okay? By, By human reason alone, by the light of natural law, you can know these things, but you can't know you know, the, the, the depth of it. You can only know from the certain, from, from the surface level. For example, Plato, he said God would never associate with a human being. Or Aristotle in the Nicomachean Ethics, he said there can't ever be a closeness between God and man. The distance between God and man is too great. Okay, so this idea now that God became a man and he took on our sins and died, well, that goes completely against Aristotle and Plato. So it was an absurdity to the Greeks. Okay? Um, And Paul, he's trying to teach now the core of this message, which is the cross. It's the greatest wisdom of all. And he has an approach that he here echoed later on in St. Augustine. When he says, if you want to understand the Christian faith, don't begin by trying to reason it out. Begin by living it. And then, everything will become clear to you. Okay? Paul says, look, I'm not going to repeat the mistake I made in Athens. I'm not going to try to, to reason you into this. And sometimes you'll find people, they, they, they want to be reasoned into Christianity. And that's not a bad instinct. It's not a bad instinct. But there's a funny thing about otherworldly wisdom. It's not merely the imparting of knowledge. It's a relationship. It's a relationship with the God who created you. And who can ever start a relationship without taking a risk? Right? See the girl across the hall, you know, in, the, in, 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 in school? Oh, you you got to get up your courage and you go over and you, and, you, and you make your pitch. Right? And it clearly didn't work out too well for me. Okay? <laughs> but still... All right, but still, you, you've got to take your chance. And here's what Paul's saying now. If you want to understand the depth of Christianism, start with agape. Start with the cross. Did I ever tell you guys about uh, my favorite little passage from the Brothers Karamazov? I preached this once. Well, I'll repeat it if I... 
There's a passage from the Brothers Karamazov, okay, and it's got this worldly woman, okay, her name, her name is Madame Holocaust. And she goes to this guru, this priest, his name is Father Zasima. And effectively, Madame Holocaust says to Father Zasima, when I was a little girl, everything was so beautiful and simple, um, and I had this beautiful faith, and it, was, and it was so deep, it was so consoling. Then I went away to college, and I lost my faith. And they taught me, you know, that there's nothing that can be explained uh, by, except by human reason, and uh, that science explains all things, and that when we come to the end of our days, there's nothing for us but flowers on a grave. And I want to get my faith back. Can you give me my faith back? You're like, sure, we can do that. Good. I want you to reason it out to me. Because that's not how you get it back. Well, well, how, how, how do I get it back? I says, I'll tell you how you get it back. You get it back by living Christian virtues. You get it back by forgiving. You get it back by loving somebody other with a self-forgetful love. Let me tell you, if you do that first, you won't need me to explain anything to you. And she goes, hmm, Christian virtues, huh? That's a pretty tall order. And Father Zasima says, yep, love in action is a harsh and a dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. One of my favorite lines anywhere in any, in, any, in any literature. And this is basically what Paul's saying. This is, the root of all of his, this is the root of all of his division. The root of all of his division is that people are, are, are misunderstanding like a worldly kind of wisdom, okay? When they really are talking about an, it should be an otherworldly relationship and love is at its core. Okay, so now another thing. Uh, they focus on the messenger. Okay, so I'm up on chapter 3 now. Ch- uh, chapter 3, verses 3 to 9. Um, you're still in the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving like ordinary men? For one, one says, I belong to Paul, and the other says, I belong to Apollos. Aren't you merely men? Who then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants, through whom God believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, God was the one who gave the growth. Neither he who plants, nor he who waters, is anything. God is the one who gives the growth. He who plants and waters, they're equal. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. But we're God's fellow workers. And you are God's field. You are God's building. Now Paul must have been very charismatic, or people wouldn't cling to him. And Apollos must have been very charismatic, or people wouldn't cling to him. But to this day, we still get people clinging to the messenger and forgetting the message. Right? still happens. Personally, I think this is partly why they transfer priests. Okay? Personally, I think this is partly why they transfer priests. Because if somebody gets too clingy to, clingy to somebody, hey, don't focus on the messenger, focus on the message. And if you end up on, in the conversely with you know, a particularly dull peg, you're not stuck with them. Okay? So they'll, 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 they'll move people along so, you know, to make things all equal. Okay, now, um, what I'm not going to do just for interest of time, I'm not going to go over uh, incest as a subject, but let me, let me make one point that arises from it. If you're interested, you can read it. It's in chapter 5. Okay, basically there's one man in Corinth. He's living in an incestuous union, and Paul slams him for it. Right? He says, you know, you're living with your father's wife. Your father's wife. This kind of thing isn't even found among the pagans. Right? And he lays down, this is what's important about it. In chapter 5, he lays down the basis for excommunication. And you all have heard of excommunication from the church. And the idea here is that if a member of the church has such bad influence, then for the good of the whole, and for a remedial and medicinal purpose of the health of the whole body, sometimes you have to expel them. 
Okay? And the idea there is it's an invitation for them to see the error of their ways and protect those uh, who, are, who, are, who are in the church. Okay? Um, and, but this is, the, this is the basis for, uh, for excommunication. As far as lawsuits are for the Lord to concern, uh, pardon me just for interest of time and passing over that, but effectively, uh, Paul, is, uh, Paul is saying, you guys in Corinth, you guys are lawsuit happy. And stop it. And he ought to be preaching in our times. Okay? Okay? Stop it. For goodness sakes, haven't you heard of the word forgiveness? Okay? Um, and Paul, Paul speaks about that. Would you, would you like to take a snack break? A little snack break? Five minutes? Okay?